Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Tom Hartman is back today for Spirit in Action to talk about the latest book in his series, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Drawing on his immense library and knowledge of political, economic, and cultural history, Tom zeroes in on the crucial events and trends of our society, lighting the way to a better future. He is an amazing worker for the well-being of our country and world, and he is the top progressive talk show host in the USA, sharing with listeners three hours each weekday, in addition to his books, columns, and other media outlets. Tom Hartman joins us via Zoom from his home in California. Tom, it's great to have you back again today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. And I really appreciate you being here. I do know that you're still having problems with your back. How is that going? What's happening now? Oh, fine. I had surgery two weeks ago, and I'm slowly healing from it. Well, you do work awfully hard, and we've covered that also in previous times when I've had you here. And you write a couple books a year and write daily columns and do your daily show. The latest book is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. We're talking about neoliberalism. I'm thankful to you and to the book for helping me actually clarify some of my ideas. I've certainly heard neoliberalism tossed out the word a few times myself, but I didn't really know what it is. Explain for our listeners what neoliberalism is. Well, neoliberalism is an economic and ultimately political philosophy that suggests that the greatest source of wisdom about how countries and economies should be run does not rest with the people themselves or with leaders that bureaucrats and politicians will always be behind the curve. Because in the marketplace itself, millions of decisions are being made every second. As we speak, you know, somebody someplace is deciding which brand of orange juice to buy, and somebody else someplace is deciding which pair of shoes to buy. And so these millions and millions of decisions made in the marketplace every second all over the world represent some sort of grand aggregate wisdom. Therefore, the marketplace should be what drives countries and economies and ultimately even democracy itself. And democracies uh, should be reduced to basically uh, police functions, court functions, military functions, and stay out of everything else that can be done better than the marketplace. For example, we shouldn't have public schools. If you can't afford to pay for school, hey, you should have been born to rich parents, or you should pull yourself up by your own damn bootstraps. We shouldn't have uh, public roads. They should all be toll roads that some, some rich guy owns, you know, can figure out a way to make a buck off of. Uh, we should be privatizing large chunks even of our military and our police, which, by the way, has happened since uh, Reagan's neoliberal reforms. Now fully half of our defense budget goes to private for-profit corporations. You know, that Social Security and Medicare are not appropriate functions of government and people should simply be buying insurance policies when they're young. And if they fail to do that, well, tough luck. Oh, and that, you know, labor is a private contract between an employer and an employee, that any interference in that marketplace, in other words, unions, are wrong and should be outlawed. So, you know, that's kind of the essence of neoliberalism. It was an idea that was hatched by a group of economists, principally Mises, Hayek, and, and Friedman, although there were 30 or so others at, at the beginning. 
It's kind of Abraham Maslow's old theory that if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem in the world looks like a nail. And being economists, they figured that, you know, and and when they first met in, in the 30s in Paris and then later in Switzerland in the 40s, the issue that they were trying to solve, these economists, was how do we reinforce democracies? How do we strengthen democracies so that they don't become like Russia did, communist, or like Germany, Italy, and Spain did, uh, fascist. And they concluded that if you could just basically get the politicians out of the way and let the market drive everything, that marketplaces wouldn't ultimately like fascism because killing 6 million Jews was not a good thing economically. They were consumers. And, you know, locking down tens of millions of people and uh, the way Stalin did and, and ultimately even starving people to death like he did in Ukraine was not is not a good thing that the marketplace would approve of. And so if we could just make the market drive everything, we would stop seeing these kinds of abuses. Of course, it's a fantasy. It's a pathetic fantasy that has failed every place it's been tried. It's been tried aggressively in Chile and in Russia. And uh, the results in Chile was a brutal strongman dictatorship. The result in Russia, brutal strongman dictatorship. In both cases, groups of oligarchs emerged. We tried it in Iraq with Paul Bremer's experiment, and that produced the same result, another disaster, and the country got looted. And we tried it here. Fortunately, here, our democracy, our economy was far enough advanced that they weren't able to impose shock doctrine neoliberalism here like they did in Russia. It wasn't done overnight. It's been a 40-year project. But they've privatized half of Medicare now. People think they're on Medicare when they've got these Medicare Advantage scam policies. They've been able to inhibit the growth of Social Security 40 years ago. You could literally live on your Social Security if you were retired. You can't any longer. It's it's just deteriorated at that point. They've destroyed labor unions. A third of America was unionized when Reagan came into office. Now it's 6% in the private sector. They've gutted the middle class. We've 65% of Americans were in the middle class when Reagan came into office. And that was largely because, you know, a third of Americans were unionized, which meant that set the wage floor, the local wage floor. So another third of Americans had the equivalent of good wages, good union benefits and wages and pay. And so two thirds of America was in the middle class. Now it's down to 45%. So we've seen, you know, a 20% loss of, of the middle class or actually a bit greater than that as a percentage since Reagan imposed neoliberalism. And I really think that Reagan did it. Clinton doubled down on it. Bush Jr. tripled down on it with another massive tax cut. That's another stipulation of neoliberalism is that wealth should not be taxed. It's the result of productive effort in the economy, and therefore it shouldn't be punished or taxed. So rich people should not be taxed. Corporations should not be taxed. And if uh, you know working people want to have a local public school or fire department, then you know let them pay property taxes. But you know, they don't even really like that. They think private companies should be running all those things. So here we are, right? Even Obama was continuing neoliberalism. But, oh, and the last thing are trade policies that labor should be as basically treated as a marketable commodity, just like, you know, t-shirts. And so if an employer wants to hire 50 cent an hour labor in China instead of $10 an hour labor in Ohio, They should be absolutely free to do that. So we did away with all of our protective tariffs and all the laws and tax policies that protected American manufacturing in over a 40-year period. We've lost 60,000 factories, and 10 to 15 million good-paying jobs, and made China the richest country in the world. 
That's a wonderful quick overview, Tom. There's so much rich detail in the book. I want to touch on some of it so people know that they should be reading this book. Again, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism by Tom Hartman, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. One thing that you didn't say, we refer to neoliberalism, and there was before that liberalism. What is liberalism versus neoliberalism? Well, liberalism means different things in different places in the United States and the United Kingdom to a a somewhat lesser extent, but broadly liberal means progressive. It means an active government that's helping the people and doing the work of the people. In the rest of Europe, liberalism means laissez-faire economics. It means libertarianism. It means neo, you know, it means what I just described when I described neoliberalism. And so when these economists got together in Europe and all of them except Friedman were Europeans, what they wanted to do was propose a new form of liberal economics that would go way beyond the previous kind of Tory government liberal economics, what we might call conservative economics here, trickle down and that sort of thing. They wanted it to be all-encompassing, comprehensive, and basically to even basically drive government. And so they called it the new liberalism. Uh, Neo is the Greek word for new, thus neoliberalism. Now, the guys who founded neoliberalism, particularly Mises and Hayek, were unabashed racists. They were both of the opinion that Black people were genetically inferior Hayek talked about when he moved to the United States, he wanted to make sure that his children never had a black babysitter. Mises talked about things like that as well. But neoliberalism wasn't intended to be an anti-racially you know, egalitarian system, whereas many of the conservative movements out of the 50s and 60s, like the John Birch Society, really had racism at their core, as does most of the ideology of the Republican Party today. If you peel away the layers of rhetoric, what you find is we want to maintain white supremacy as their slogan. It seems obvious to many of us that such a simplistic philosophy that you know whoever can get away with anything without the government providing any oversight and can get rich on it, God bless them. You know, I mean, that's kind of a sad overview of it. I think that what's needed is an overview of power and its many facets. And certainly economic power is one of the powers that are here. Stepping back from what you actually wrote in the hidden history of neoliberalism, what do you see as the big sources of power in the world? There's people power, right? There's power that comes from prestige, other ideas. What do you see as the major sources of power? in our world today? I think the single major source of power in the world today is wealth. And, uh, you know, what you find is at a certain level, extraordinarily wealthy people are basically immune from prosecution. They're, you know, they have a level of immunity that is just breathtaking. And certainly here in the United States with five corrupt Republicans on the Supreme Court and their Citizens United decision saying that bribing politicians is no longer considered bribery, it's considered free speech. And when corporations do it, that's fine because they're people too. You know, these are all reflections of the power of great wealth. When the morbidly rich decide to exert their political power, as they've been doing for the last 40 years in the United States in a big way, and particularly since Citizens United, you end up with massive distortions in what would otherwise be a democratic society or a democratic system. And those distortions are, well, they're just, you know, they're showing up all over the place in so many bizarre policies and rules and things. I'm tempted to go down at least a few different paths into analysis of this. And you follow a lot of different paths, of course, in the book. One of the tenets of neoliberalism that you point out is that property rights are more important than human rights. 
And that blows my mind. That's pretty hard. And yet we seem to be able to get close to half of the population of the United States to buy into that kind of thinking. Is it just that they're blind to that tenet of neoliberalism or is it put into effect in neoliberalism policies? Well, neoliberal doctrine suggests that property rights are everything. You know, whoever has the most wealth, uh, you know, it should be protected. If there is a function of the state, it's to protect property rights, period, full stop. That human rights are things that vary from culture to culture and place to place and religion to religion and time to time. And therefore are really more the function should be the function of social systems like shaming and religion. One of the tenets of neoliberalism that I failed to mention earlier is that there needs to be order and classes in society, that that's a natural arrangement that humans have. There are people on the top and people on the bottom. You can't try to change that because that's normal. And the tradition in social issues is the result of an evolutionary process of thousands of years of evolution that we should not tinker with. So if for thousands of years, gay people have been in the closet, if for thousands of years, white people have exercised supremacy over other races, then that's how it should be, because that's how evolution has cultural evolution has has set things up. And, you know, it, it ignores you know, a whole lot of factors, obviously. But this is why you know, proponents of neoliberalism typically don't pursue human rights. And in some cases, like with the Reagan administration actively and the Trump administration actively work against human rights. The neoliberals who are kind of the compromised neoliberals, you know, like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, they will give lip service to and sometimes even aggressively fight on behalf of human rights and civil rights. So that that's one part of neoliberalism that they just don't buy into. Although, you know, keep in mind, you know, Barack Obama was not in favor of gay marriage until Joe Biden basically pushed him into it by publicly talking about it. So I don't know if that was out of some neoliberal philosophy or if that was just a political calculation that there weren't enough gay people to, you know, they would hurt him to support gay marriage rather than help him. I'm not sure exactly why he held that position until he changed his mind. Same thing with Bill Clinton with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But there it is. Most of the people who advocate neoliberalism would say that monopolies are more efficient, that of course you let monopolies happen. You don't need trust busting, etc. because, hey, it's the efficient thing. Reality, has, you know, evolution has voted. They're more powerful because they are better at surviving and therefore they shouldn't go on. This, of course, depends on what measure you use to determine what's best, what's biggest, what's got most. I think that neoliberals use money as their measure. Other things don't matter. So number of deaths doesn't matter. Amount of disease doesn't matter. Environmental disasters don't matter because they're not numbers. Well, or they do matter in as much as they might affect the economy and then, you know, the economy itself will react. I mean, neoliberalism is a very reactive philosophy. Milton Friedman argued that there should be no licensure for physicians, for example. So if, you know, if I'd gone to an unlicensed doctor for my back surgery and he just totally screwed me up and left me paralyzed under Milton Friedman's theory, I would tell a lot of people about that and they would stop going to him and he would run out of customers and he'd get weeded out of the gene pool of doctors, as it were. So, you know, fire, forest fires or climate change or whatever it may be. I mean, you know, the whole neoliberal idea is that the market will ultimately self-correct and that those harms, those people who get killed or hurt or whatever in the meantime, are simply the flags, the tools, the markers, the indicators, the data points 
that the market uses to determine how it should reorient or reorganize itself. And with regard to monopoly, you know, I, I wrote about this in the earlier book, The Hidden History of American Monopolies. Neoliberalism very much believes that bigger is better, predators are a natural thing, predatory capitalism is a good thing, and that uh, the government should play no role in protecting small and local businesses from giant predatory corporations. You know, I've confronted friends, not close friends, but friends who lean in that direction or very, you know, conservative Republican or whatever they and, you know, they'll rail about the evils of socialism and they'll label anything socialism. When I talk to them about schools, they say, oh, well, that we're not talking about that. They'll just dismiss that. Is it an explicit part of neoliberal doctrine schools? Forget it. Oh, yeah. This, this is why uh, I forget which state just did it, but one of the Republican controlled states just passed a law allowing everybody in the state to have access to vouchers so that they can go to private for profit schools. They can send their kids to private for profit schools. They're basically trying to ghettoize and destroy public education. That's neoliberalism on steroids. One of the things you mentioned, Tom, and again, Tom Hartman is our guest here today for Spirit in Action. One of the things you mentioned was the history with Pinochet in Chile, that it was kind of a testing ground for neoliberalism. Could you talk a little bit about that history? I'm afraid too many people don't know about it. They may have known he was a dictator. They may have known he presided for quite a while, but they don't really understand the economic part of that experiment. Yeah, in 1973, uh, Salvador Allende was doing well, and he wasn't a real socialist socialist. He was kind of a Bernie Sanders socialist, I guess you'd say, although the state did own a number of businesses, but it wasn't widespread. It wasn't like Iraq, for example, where over 90% of all the business in the country was state-owned. So two things were happening. One was that there were these three large American copper companies that owned most of the shares of the largest copper mine in the world, which was in Chile. It was the single largest natural resource of the country in terms of wealth, in terms of you know what represented value for the country. And they were extracting enormous amounts of copper out and paying just a tiny fee to the Chilean people and keeping the rest of the money here in the United States or wherever they took it. And that had been pissing off Chileans for a long, long time. Then the telephone system in Chile was owned by, most of it anyway, was owned by a company here in the United States, International Telephone and Telegraph, IT&T. So Allende said that he was going to nationalize these mines. In fact, he organized a commission to figure out how much that they were worth, the value of the shares in the mines owned by these three American companies were, so that he could appropriately reimburse them, which he did, and how much the phone system was worth so that he could give the money to AIT&T and, and just take it over. This was intolerable to Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. This was you know, an affront to you know, major American corporations, particularly AIT&T, which had a long history of working with the C. CIA. They ran phone systems all over the world. And on those phone systems, they ran wiretaps for the CIA. You know, it was an extraordinarily symbiotic relationship. And so, you know, Nixon and Kissinger got the CIA involved in this thing. And, you know, let's kick Allende out and bring in uh, this uh, general, Augusto Pinochet, who was a hardcore right winger. And they did. I, you know, Pinochet, the day of the coup, they had this giant truck convoy, you know, shades of recent events. That circled the city and locked everything down as they were circling the city, honking their horns. And when they had basically shut down the, the largest city in Chile, Pinochet, who controlled the large chunk of the army and his armed forces, 
moved in on the presidential palace. Salvador Allende and about two dozen of his advisors and family members were in the presidential palace. Allende went to a microphone and gave a radio address, his very last. He saw them coming for him and uh, he shot himself in the head. And Pinochet took over and brought in Milton Friedman at the request of Richard Nixon as his advisor, his economic and democratic advisor on how to put the country back together. And Milton Friedman said, you've got to sell off all these state-owned enterprises, privatize everything. You've got to break all the unions and all the union contracts. You've got to privatize the social security system for Chile, which was kind of a crown jewel of the government. And uh, Pinochet did all those things. The result was massive inflation, massive unemployment. The people at the very top got richer and richer and and everybody else just got wiped out, just got poorer and poorer. People started protesting and arguing against this. And so uh, Pinochet uh, had his soldiers take those people either into the national stadium where they were tortured and many of them murdered, tens of thousands of them. Or if they wanted to make examples of people and really scare the hell out of folks, they'd take the leaders of the opposition out over the ocean in helicopters and throw them into the water from a couple thousand feet and kill them that way. And he was quite proud of that. They advertised this, which is why, you know, the Proud Boys these days love to wear T-shirts to say free helicopter rides for liberals. You know, over the course of his reign, uh, Pinochet killed thousands of people. He never succeeded in putting the economy back together. The economy, you know, was struggling right up until the end of the Pinochet regime. And, uh, you know, he was ultimately prosecuted for crimes against humanity. But that was the first major neoliberal experiment. Naomi Klein refers to this as the shock doctrine. She wrote a book about this that's excellent also. It was years ago. It was called The Shock Doctrine. It really is a book about neoliberalism at the end of the day. So the long and short of it, though, is that neoliberalism as an economic doctrine, how it's supposed to do wonderful things for Chile, was complete failure. Yeah, it was a scam. As I said earlier, the neoliberalism has never successfully been tried anywhere. And everywhere it has been tried, it either produces dictatorship in the context of oligarchy, or it just devastates the middle class, reduces middle class people to poverty, to work, to being the working poor, and elevates the wealthy to being morbidly rich. We now have, as a consequence of 40 years of neoliberal policy in the United States, we now have three men who own more wealth than the bottom half of America. It's pretty mind-boggling to think about. Never been that way before. Let me step back further in history. Feudalism, monarchy, they had their own economic power. I mean, you get to make your laws when you're the monarch. You've got your sycophants around you. How does that differ from neoliberalism? I mean, neoliberalism's got pretty bow ties and such tied around it, but I don't think that it functions terribly differently than a monarchy, you know, or a dictatorship or whatever. Yeah. And neoliberals would argue that monarchy, because the monarch has the power to intervene in the economics of the country, it's not a, quote, free system. I mean, there's neoliberal organizations that rate the freedom of countries. If you Google things like Freedom Index, you'll find these ratings from the Cato Institute and the Competitive Enterprise Institute and these other neoliberal think tanks that are funded by big billionaires who don't want their taxes raised. You know, they give really high ratings of freedom to, to places like Singapore, where, you know, you can go to prison for criticizing the president. In fact, where I had a hotel room trashed because I simply suggested to a group of parents that they should use political pressure to improve their schools. You know, the secret police came in and tore my hotel room apart. In Singapore. In Singapore, yeah. So, you know, I guess we have to define what freedom is. (laughs) (laughs) Freedom is uh, the freedom to be as rich and trash everybody else in the country. So uh, is it compatible with what we call democracy? Neoliberalism? No, because neoliberalism produces 
oligarchy. Oligarchy is an extraordinarily, and this was the main point I made in the hidden history of oligarchy, the oligarchy is always a transitional political system. It never lasts. And it always transitions into one of two things. Either it collapses into something like democracy, the people rise up and take it over, or it turns into a strongman dictatorship into a neo-feudal system, a royal system, a, a fascist system, uh, you know, something like that. That's the real danger because neoliberalism pretty much always is a short path to oligarchy. And then oligarchy has its own dangers in terms of what follows it. Well, then let's go back to the development of neoliberalism. Hayek, Mises, they're opposed to fascism. They want to protect against it. And they say, this is going to protect against it. But it, from my point of view, I don't see any way in which it's at all protective against it. What am I missing? Well, Hayek in, in The Road to Serfdom, as I recall, pretty sure that was his book, writes about how it was liberal policies, and I'm talking the American use of the word, like in Germany. I mean, Germany was the first country in the world to have a national healthcare system. It was in the 1880s, single-payer healthcare that Kaiser Wilhelm brought about, and he was a conservative, <laughs> very conservative. And he did it because it was the cheapest, most efficient way to have a healthy army, basically. But in any case, uh, Hayek makes this case that it was the social safety net in Germany that led to the rise of Hitler. And, uh, you know, it's it, you have to read the book. His, his logic is extraordinarily convoluted. The, the essence of it is that because people's needs were met, they did not object to the rise of Hitler. As long as their needs were met, they were like sheep. And, the, you know, a social safety net causes people to behave like sheep, which in no way even resembles the actual history of the rise to power of Hitler. But, you know, it's their story and they're sticking with it. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, liberals, progressives who listen to Spirit in Action. And when they hear Tom Hartman say that Clinton was neoliberalist tool, that Obama was still supporting that, I'm sure the bile rises in their throat. Is there a rating? Is there, can we give people a neoliberal rating? You know, this he was 48% neoliberal or as opposed to Bush was this much? Because after all, I think Clinton and Obama did not produce tax cuts for the richest. What's the rating for President Clinton and for President Obama in terms of their neoliberal affectations? Well, Clinton came into office arguing in favor of neoliberalism, openly arguing in favor of neoliberalism in the form of the North America Free Trade Agreement. That was the big debate between him and George Bush Sr. Ross Perot jumped into that and said, this is insane. This neoliberal policy will cause a giant sucking sound to the South as all the American jobs vanish. Bill Clinton said, we don't want those jobs anyway. They're the old, dirty industrial jobs. We've got computers coming. We've got a new era. We want white collar jobs. And so we will gladly give those jobs up. He was right up front about it. He was as neoliberal as George H.W. Bush was and, and Reagan, for that matter, who started the policy. Bill Clinton in his first inaugural declared that it was the end of the era of big government which is classic neoliberal statement. And he followed through on that. He had all these initiatives. In fact, Al Gore led one of them, you know, the Efficiency in Government Initiative, where they were looking for waste and fraud and abuse in government agencies, which is just a canard for, you know, what can we cut in terms of regulation of corporate behavior and the behavior of very wealthy people. He also said this is the end of welfare as we know it. And Bill Clinton put a time limit, a five-year time limit on all, almost all welfare programs. Another massive neoliberal step that has led to extraordinary suffering and poverty and, you know, increased poverty in the United States. Clinton has never 
backed away from any of that. He's never apologized for any of that. He continues to defend all that. In fact, he reinvented the Democratic Party along the neoliberal lines and called it the New Democrats, you know, talked about it, had, uh, you know, the, his organization, uh, several organizations, actually, that he was affiliated with that were openly neoliberal. And Clinton never successfully raised taxes in any meaningful way. So we still had a very, very, very low tax rate and billionaires and corporations were easily evading taxes. And that was okay with Clinton, too. In Bill Clinton's defense, what you have to realize is that in 1976 and 78, the U.S. Supreme Court, and I deal with this at length in the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America, the U.S. Supreme Court in, in the Buckley versus Vallejo decision in 76 and in the Boston versus Pilate decision in 78 ruled that uh, the previous 200 years of American history, where if rich people gave money to politicians and in exchange for that, politicians voted a particular way, we used to call that corruption. We used to call it bribery. The Supreme Court ruled it was neither corrupt nor bribery, that when rich people or corporations pour money into, you know, down the throats of politicians and those politicians dance to their tune, that is called free speech and it's protected by the First Amendment. That money isn't money, it's speech. And the corporations aren't corporations, they're people. And that then opened the floodgates for corporate money in the 79 and 1980 period, which is what floated Ronald Reagan into the White House. At that point in time, the Democratic Party's largest source of revenue were the labor unions. And so when those decisions, when the Supreme Court made those decisions and opened the floodgates to political corruption, to legalize political bribery, uh, the Democrats kind of ignored it. They were just like, you know, not a big deal. We've got these unions. Well, then Reagan comes in, you know, a third of America is unionized and Reagan goes after the unions aggressively, starts with Patco and then just keeps going down the list. And, and by the time Reagan and Bush, 12 years later, by the time they're out of office, you know, the rate of unionization in the United States is down to 11, 12%. The unions are hurting badly. You know, they're on the verge of going out of business. They don't have the ability to fund elections. And so Al Fromm and Bill Clinton came up with this new idea. Al Fromm wrote a book about it, in fact, in which they would, uh, the Democratic Party would jump in bed with corporations just like the Republicans had, but we'll let the Republicans have the dirty industries. They can have steel and chemical and fossil fuel and mining and all those dirty industries. That'll uh, we'll let the Republicans take them. We want the clean industries. We want tech. We want insurance. We want banks. Those are the people that we want to get in bed with. But, you know, it's just friendly. It's like neoliberalism with a friendly mask in front of it. But Clinton in 92, when he was running for president, really had no choice. I mean, at that point in time, the internet was not well-developed enough that you could raise money on the web. We didn't really see that happen until the Obama administration. And if he wanted to have, launch a viable presidential candidacy and the uh, the federal funding for elections that had been put into place during the Jerry Ford administration as part of the, you know, let's clean up government stuff um, had not yet been blown up completely, but it never kept up. You know, Congress didn't raise the amounts to keep up with inflation or the increasing costs of media. And so you really couldn't run a presidential campaign that way. The last person who ran for president and won, and I think the only person who ran for president and won on federal funding was Jimmy Carter. So, you know, by the time Bill Clinton came along 16 years later, he had no choice but to take this corporate money. And to take that corporate money, you had to embrace neoliberalism, which is what all the corporations wanted. Plus, you know, it hadn't been yet proven to be an insane, disastrous policy. You know, there were people making excuses for what had happened in Chile and saying it was an anomaly and it was because Pinochet was a bad guy. It wasn't the system. Quack, quack, quack. And so I think at, at some level, 
Clinton actually came to believe in this stuff. Um, with Barack Obama, it's a little more complex. I mean, you know, he basically, you know, inherited a government, a neoliberal government that had neoliberalism deeply embedded in many parts of it. You know, he tried to get through a national health care system that would allow everybody to buy into Medicare, which would have not been a neoliberal policy. But Joe uh, Lieberman took $1.3 million from the, from the health insurance industry, and he was the deciding vote. And he said, no, you can't have that. This has... Obamacare has to be a purely neoliberal policy. Every single dollar that goes through it has to go through for-profit corporations. So there it is. You know, Obama tinkered around the edges in some ways with some positive regulatory reform, but basically he was another neoliberal. I don't mean that he was a bad president. Obama did a lot of great stuff, particularly with regard to race relations and international policies. He restored faith in, in America on the part of many of our allies around the world, as did Clinton. Both of them were good presidents, relatively speaking, but they were both neoliberals. What encourages me about Joe Biden is that even though most of the policies that have been passed so far have neoliberal components, for example, Joe Manchin inserted a provision into both the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act that required every single penny of those tax dollars being spent by those bills to go through the hands of a for-profit corporation. That's pure neoliberalism. And Biden had to sign that, but he really had no choice. Biden was opposed to that. So I think that the neoliberal era has come or is coming to an end. And I think that Joe Biden, potentially, particularly if he can get a large enough majority in the House and Senate in this fall's elections, may be the guy who puts the stake through the heart of neoliberalism, or at least positions the stake above the heart of neoliberalism. I have a lot of hope and a lot of faith in Joe Biden right now, which I can't say I had before the election. Well, it's wonderful to hear that, Tom. Folks, we are speaking with Tom Hartman. Besides being U.S.'s number one progressive talk show host, besides the author of 35, I don't know how many books, 37, probably 472 books, uh, including his Hidden History series. We're talking today about the hidden history of neoliberalism, how Reaganism gutted America and how to restore its greatness. Besides all those things, he is also a person who is recovering from back problems right now. And I so appreciate, Tom, that you're spending your time here. I know that sitting is probably not the best thing you could be doing for your back. And so your gift that you give to us through your dedicated work on media in trying to reverse the brain drain that's happened to so much of how our government and our economic system works is so valuable. I know you're taking some pain for the team, and I thank you for that. He is our guest today for Spirit in Action. 17 years we've been doing this program. Check them all out on northernspiritradio.org. On northernspiritradio.org, you'll find links to our guests, so you'll find links that you can get to Tom's daily radio show. It's well worth listening to. You can find more about his books, all of that, but all of our other guests this past 17 years, both for Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul, Please post comments on the show when you visit our site. And don't forget that we need your support. Unlike other broadcasters, we don't have some corporation. We don't want any corporation to be controlling us by their donations. We also don't want government to be doing because so often government can be purchased as a puppet for corporations. So we depend on you, the listeners, to support us. And please support the local community radio stations wherever you live. There's some 45 of them across the United States states that carry Norton Spirit Radio programs. 
please support them with your hands and with your wallet and make sure that we have some options. We need something other than what money can buy and your hands make that difference. So again, Tom Hartman here, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. Let's cover a few more points before we let you lie down or go on to your next writing task, Tom. One of the things that you say is that the 2008 depression, the blow up of our economic system that happened then, is a blow up of the George W. Bush neoliberalism. Could you defend that right now, or at least provide some of the salient points? People should be, again, reading The Hidden History of Neoliberalism to find the detail. Yeah, well, it wasn't exclusively George W. Bush. This was Bill Clinton's handiwork, actually. I I mean, the Republicans were pushing it, but the Democrats were fine to go along with it. In 1999, Bill Graham, the Republican senator from Texas, stood up on the floor of the United States Senate and said, uh, you know, this Glass-Steagall bill that Congress passed in 1930, whatever it was, 34, I think, that says that banks, checkbook banks, can't uh, gamble in the stock market with your money. You know, it's prevented a major bank crash for, geez, 70 years now. I guess we don't need it anymore. It's worked so well. And the banks have all kind of figured out how not to do that. And, you know, things are going good. So let's just blow up Glass-Steagall. And so in 1999, Bill Clinton signed legislation to end the Glass-Steagall Act, which led to another massive consolidation, another massive neoliberal consolidation of banks and investment houses. And they just went nuts, you know, with mortgage-based securities largely, although there were other factors that contributed to it, and started running all these scams that were technically legal. And I mean, nobody ever went to jail. Steve Mnuchin threw, what, 30,000 people out of their homes in California, robo-signing, which is patently illegal, but... You know, he ended up the Treasury Secretary of the United States, and he just got a billion dollars from the Saudi government. But George Bush really put it into place, and and he directed the Justice Department not to go after these banks and had the banking regulators that he had some influence over, by and large, ignore what was going on. And that, that, you know, because it seemed like it was good for the marketplace. Housing values were increasing because of these low interest rates and because of these liar loans, and more and more Americans were buying homes. And isn't this wonderful? And George Bush was bragging about it all the time. Until it blew up in his face. You know, you ended up with the Secretary of the Treasury standing there in front of a microphone with his hands trembling, holding this single piece of paper saying, please give us money, because the banking system had locked up. We still don't have Glass-Steagall. We still need it. So we're still at risk. But there are the anti-neoliberal forces in Congress, the Elizabeth Warrens and Bernie Sanders and the Congressional Progressive Caucus. They're very interested in re-regulating the financial sector. But it's going to be a long ways. I mean, you've, the entire Republican Party is still committed to neoliberalism. And probably 20, 30 percent of the Democratic Party is now, which is amazing when you consider that just you know 30 years ago, it was 100 percent of the or maybe 80 percent, 90 percent of the Democratic Party. I mean, the people just jumped on board with Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. But, you know, the Progressive Caucus is now the second largest caucus in Congress. I did a fundraiser for them like 15 years ago when Raul Grijalva was running it. And, you know, a couple dozen people showed up. You know, we raised a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars. And they had, I think at the time, maybe 10 or 12 members. Now it's the second largest caucus in Congress. It's growing. And that's why I say I think the era of neoliberalism is coming to an end. And I hope that this book is its epitaph. (laughs) We should be so fortunate. One of the things I found very interesting, and I hadn't thought of it this way, and so I really thank you, Tom, for bringing it to my attention. Tariffs used to fund our government. We didn't have an income tax, and funding mostly for our national government came from tariffs. There was a resurgent of tariffs 
under Donald Trump. So as much as I criticize him about everything else, I say, well, was that an anti-neoliberalist leaning of his that was bringing, I, I don't think he was trying to fund the government through tariffs. He was trying to use tariffs in a way that they used to be used. Does this produce mixed feelings in you? Is it's, it's almost like you said something nice about him. No, I, D- Donald Trump, to the extent that he won the presidency, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion, you know, we know now that Paul Manafort was feeding very granular, I mean, like down to the precinct level Republican polling to Russian intelligence throughout the campaign. And then Russian intelligence was sending Facebook messages literally to people in those homes, on those blocks in those districts where they needed to win. So in my opinion, Donald Trump was put into office by Vladimir Putin. But to the extent that beyond that, you know, another 50, 60 million people voted for him in the 2016 election, it's because he was running against neoliberalism. I mean, he stood up on stage. He was talking like Bernie Sanders. It was all lies. But, you know, he stood up on stage and he said, everybody on this stage wants to privatize Social Security. I want to strengthen it, which turned out to be a lie. He tried to, in fact, he, he laid off 10,000 Social Security workers. He tried to gut Social Security. He said, everybody on this stage wants to cut taxes on rich people. I'm going to raise taxes on rich people. I'm going to give a nosebleed to my peers. And of course, he lied. You know, it was another lie. He said, everybody on this stage loves the fact that all these factories and jobs have gone to China. I'm going to bring them home. And, you know, to the extent that he was using tariffs, yeah, tariffs, in my opinion, are a good thing. And, you know, you use them to protect domestic manufacturing, particularly in critical industries. The problem was that Trump didn't do it the right way. He did it in this buffoonish Trump way. As president, he imposed tariffs by executive order. Well, that just means nothing. I mean, the next president can reverse an executive order. So all these companies that are looking at, oh, all of a sudden we got to pay a 20% tariff on goods we manufacture in China and bring it to the United States. Well, hey, we're still making a 50% profit. I guess we'll absorb that for a few years until the next president comes along. If you want tariffs to really work, you have to pass them through Congress so that they, they last for decades. And, you know, as Alexander Hamilton did in 1793, and, and those tariffs were main, maintained basically until the Clinton administration. So the bottom line is that I think that, frankly, 2016 was probably the real turning point. That was the point at which the American people soundly rejected neoliberalism. They did it based on Donald Trump's rhetoric and the fact that Hillary Clinton was still defending neoliberalism. She was still defending. She was saying, don't have tariffs. Don't try to protect American workers. And she was refusing to say that she would raise taxes on rich people substantially. I mean, you know, Trump would just say anything, of course. But he knew what to say. He knew what people were upset about. And, you know, he told them what they wanted to hear and they voted for him. I don't think it'll work again. I don't think it'll work again for the Republican Party. You know, he's still got some diehard true believers who actually think he did something. But his tariffs were largely symbolic. They were small. They were in just a few sectors. And they were largely inconsequential, which is why Joe Biden hasn't taken them down yet, which I think is actually a good thing. It tells me that Biden gets it. And I'm hopeful that we see actually more tariffs coming down the road. I think it's crazy that Apple is you know, one of the wealthiest companies in the world, and they're making China rich rather than us. We should be making Apple equipment here in the United States. Right. One of the things that he said, which I thought was favorable when he was running for president, the TPP, he was opposed to it. Right. Did he effectively kill it? He did, or at least he got the United States out of it. I mean, the, the other, what was it, 17 countries, I think? They went ahead and did it. You know, and there were some parts of the TPP that were actually arguably good things, even for the United States. But there was an awful lot of neoliberal junk in there. Whether it's going to hold or not is a good question. 
you know, China is violating a lot of those. Well, China is not part of it, but, you know, some of the countries involved are violating a lot of the policies for the TPP. It's become kind of a footnote to history, really, rather than this big sweeping thing that President Obama envisioned it as. But it was just another neoliberal trade policy. Was South Korea part of it? I think they are. And the reason I bring that up is because you do talk about South Korea and their rejection of neoliberalism. Oh, yeah. It's funny. Obama gave a speech in Kenya in which he pointed out that in 1956, the GDP of the per person GDP of South Korea was identical to that of Kenya. That now South Korea is, you know, on a per capita basis, probably one of the four or five richest countries in the world. So, you know, the basis of his speech was basically to Kenya saying, you know, so just, you know, adopt neoliberalism and go along with it and get with the program. But it wasn't neoliberalism that made South Korea wealthy. It was the American plan, Alexander Hamilton's 11 point American plan from 1791, which South Korea adopted with General Park, uh, you know, when he became dictator after a military coup in South Korea in 1956. And he put tariffs on imports and gave subsidies to exports, large grants to corporations. You know, uh, Samsung and Mitsubishi uh, were both, uh, Samsung was mostly selling human hair for wigs and fish. But Park just poured money into these companies and protected the markets. They banned the import of American made cars. He started this huge national social policy to shame people who were using foreign made products. Focus of it was American-made cigarettes, which were at that point in time very popular in South Korea. Within a year or so, people were no longer smoking American cigarettes. So it was the antithesis of neoliberalism, the opposite of neoliberalism that built the wealth of South Korea. How much of it was democratic? Was democracy functional in South Korea at that point? No, it was not. Park Chung-hee, I think was his name, the General Park in any way. You know, he ruled the country with an iron fist. Eventually, South Korea did become democratic. And I'm sorry, I'm not enough of a history of South Korean politics to tell you when. I think it was in the 70s. And I'm not sure if it was that Park died or if he was overthrown. I'll leave that to Southeast Asian historians. But South Korea is now a thriving democracy. You know, they've adopted a few neoliberal policies, but by and large, they still protect their domestic manufacturers and, and support their export industries. Folks, we're talking with Tom Hartman about his latest book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. There's just a couple more aspects we're going to cover before I let you off, Tom. One is, a lot of people don't think of this. When you've got control of the media, as is so much the case in large corporations, they end up making you think of things. They, they all squirrel and people look that way and they don't realize that there's significant impacts like the privatizing of the commons, which is so important. How do you make a profit? Well, you get the money, but you make someone else clean up the mess. Talk about the commons and what they've been in the United States and what they are under neoliberalism. You know, there's a few states, I think Virginia and Massachusetts among them, that don't call themselves states, they call themselves commonwealths. It's a word that goes back to the founding of the republic, the idea that there are some things that we all individually own, you know, our home, our business, our possessions. And then there are some things that represent wealth that we own in common with each other. And government is one of those things, and government should be protecting those things. And those things are largely the things that are generally referred to as natural monopolies. You would only have one water system in your house. You can't have three water pipes coming into your house, so you can choose which water vendor to have. You've only got one sewer system running out of your house. 
So it's a natural monopoly. It's, you know, there's not competition in that marketplace. There can't be. It was the same thing with telephone service for a long, long time when telephone systems and, you know, were based on wires and were rudimentary. The police, the fire department, the public schools, these are all considered the commons. And, and the commons is the primary response, you know, the military, obviously, is the primary responsibility of government is to protect the common wealth and enhance the common wealth, build and strengthen the common wealth. Well, because the commonwealth is funded by tax dollars, and uh, as any libertarian will tell you, taxes are money extracted from people at the point of a gun. In other words, the, go- the government literally has the power to imprison you if you fail to pay your taxes. That's a very attractive thing for some hustler who wants to make a whole pile of money is to have A, a natural monopoly. There's no competition. And B, you can put people in jail if they don't pay their bills. You know, that's why it was interesting to see that Bucks County, Pennsylvania, just yesterday voted against privatizing their water and sewer systems with this company called Aqua, which has privatized dozens, maybe hundreds, I don't know, of water systems and sewer systems around the world. You know, they come in and they say, hey, your government is in trouble. You need some cash here. Here's a few million dollars. Just give us your water system. And then, you know, they were planning on raising the price of water and sewer from $44 a month to $88 a month within a year. And that's how they make their money is they cut back on services and they raise prices. This kind of privatization, you know, I mentioned earlier, half of Medicare is now privatized. We're seeing water and septic systems all around the country. About a third, a little over a third of them are privatized now. Over half of all the electricity in the United States is now produced by private for-profit companies. And probably 95% of all the internet service in the country was developed by the government is in private hands. And when you look at those places where the commonwealth is being protected, like Chattanooga, Tennessee, for example, wired the entire city for high-speed internet. And for about a third of the cost that the average American pays for internet, they're getting, you know, 100 MIPS up and down, high quality, absolutely reliable service in Chattanooga. Whereas, you know, just go to any nearby town where it's all Comcast and Verizon and, you know, half a dozen other companies. And in many cases, it's not even competitive. More than half of Americans who use the internet have only one choice of internet service provider. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the words Comcast and customer service very rarely occur in the same sentence. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'd add my two cents to this. There was a company in California wanted to bottle water. So they came to my town, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and they talked to a city official. This was all done without any public notice of anyone. They worked up an agreement. They were going to be selling them water for less than what a consumer here pays for their own water. They finally announced this decision. They said, okay, next week, the city council is going to vote on this roughly that kind of timeline you know we're going to prove it we should well people were up in arms right away you're selling our water you're giving away our natural rights you're doing it to someone there because they can slip you a big check but you're doing it for cheaper than what you're getting from us so it's going to be a losing deal for the city for that matter for all of us here it got blown up and the company walked away very quickly so democracy and the commons were preserved here But it happens so often so easily if people aren't paying attention. Yeah, I agree. One or two more questions. One is, you talked about how Chile and how Iraq, the neoliberal policies that have been used in those countries to try and develop their economies, have been bad losers. Which country most effectively has resisted and opposed neoliberalism in their policies? Which countries stand as standard bearers for the opposite of neoliberalism? China. 
China. Yeah, well, you did. Ta- you talked about how China got past it. That'll surprise a lot of people, of course. Yeah, yeah. I was in China in in November of 1988, and that was the year that they started this grand debate about whether they were just beginning to emerge from the from Mao, you know, from the Cultural Revolution. And the big question was, how do we turn China into a dynasty, back into a dynasty, into a modern empire, into a modern 21st century state? There was one group of people who were arguing that we should adopt neoliberalism, or that they should, and there was another group of people arguing that they should adopt Alexander Hamilton's American plan. And they were quite explicit. I mean, they were literally using those kind of that kind of language. This went back and forth for a number of years. And in the early 90s, they finally made the decision and forgetting the name of the Chinese leader at that time, but Deng Xiaoping, I think it was. He decided to go with the American strategy, not the one that America was using at that time. But at that time, we were fully in the teeth of neoliberalism, but the one that Alexander Hamilton and George Washington came up with, which had made America rich. And so they did that. They started putting import tariffs on things being brought into China. They still have those. They started subsidizing exports so that you could move your manufacturing to China. It wouldn't cost you any more than if you kept it in Kenosha, Wisconsin. They subsidized nascent industries, new starting companies. They heavily subsidized companies that could work for them in the defense industry and that kind of thing. They just followed Alexander Hamilton's plan to a T. And the consequence was literally the most rapid growth of any economy in the history of the world. China's middle class today is larger than the entire population of the United States. And maybe we can say good for them or maybe not. It's kind of scary. Uh, you know, it works. And, yes. and just like it worked for us. And by the way, Alexander Hamilton didn't come up with this out of nowhere. He copied it from King Henry Seventh. It was called the Tudor Plan when King Henry Seventh did this in the 1500s. And then before that, the King Henry was just copying what the Dutch had done in, in the 13 and 1400s when they ruled the, the waves and, and were the major power in the world. So this is an idea that's been around literally for 700 years, 800 years, something like that, and has worked every time it's been tried. You know, Hamilton's American plan has worked literally every time and every place it's been tried. And neoliberalism has failed every time and every place it's been tried. And we're in the midst of a failure, but maybe we're turning around from it. Two more quick questions. One is, what do you think of the book State of Terror, co-written by Hillary Clinton and Louise Penny? I haven't read it. Oh, my goodness. You're just not with the culture. I offer that as an introduction to the fact that I'm sure you have some other book that you've sent off to the publisher. What's your next one coming up? The next book is going to be The Hidden History of American Democracy. Democracy. Well, that's a novel idea for this country. I <laughs> there you go. Let's try it. <laughs> so that'll be six months or something down the road when people will be able to get yeah, a hold of it. That'll be out in the spring. So it's a ways into the future, but folks, keep your eyes and your ears tuned for Tom Hartman's next book. We've been talking today about the hidden history of neoliberalism, how Reaganism gutted America, and how to restore its greatness. TomHartman.com, the links on NordenSpiritRadio.org. And Tom, again, I so much appreciate the time you spent with me. I wish all the best healing to your back, and I'm so thankful for your gifts of words, intellect, and the progressive of efforts that you've made to restore our country to the greatness it could be. I just thank you so much for all that work that you do. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Mark. And folks, the links are again, as I said, on NordenSpiritRadio.org. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NordenSpiritRadio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh